My story is the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Yeah, that's a story that uh, can be lived out in great expression from every one of us, no matter the background. God is a redeeming God, and He's chosen you to be here today to hear that kind of message and to participate in that kind of message. I noticed as people were coming in today that we have a lot of guests in this service, and just want to pause and say thank you for your attendance. I'm grateful to the Spirit for giving us opportunity to connect today. Uh, you come on a day, I'm going to be very blunt, you come on a day that is a challenging passage. And uh, this is not one of those that the preacher is going to get up and say, well, I'm going to make them feel good today. <laughs> uh, we are not going to have one of those, let's grow a church message. All right? What we will have is at the end of Jesus' teaching today, we will have people that will be more readied for gospel advancement than ever before. And I'm more interested in growing the kingdom of God than I am this church. And I believe you are as well. So we're going to dive in. We're going to recognize this is a tough teaching that might make us um, scratch our head and say, okay, Lord, that's pretty direct. Uh, but we're believing that God has given us this word and that it came from the mouth of Jesus for real intentionality for today. So let's read it together. We're in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the 10th chapter. Uh, if you're new to Meadowbrook, you're sort of handicapped because we are actually about two-thirds of the way through the second message that Jesus has preached that Matthew has recorded. So I'm going to get you caught up, but it'll be in the middle of the message when I do that. Just hang on. I think in the end, you're going to have it all come together, and it will not be as if you've missed the beginning of the message that Jesus has been proclaiming. So Matthew chapter 10, we're going to begin today in verse 34. We're going to go through verse 39. Jesus said, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. <clears throat> For I have come to set man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So on the surface, this is a troubling passage. It is the Lord's making statement about some contentious or harsh realities. In reality, understanding these words that Jesus is presenting will actually help us to live at peace in a world that is very much conflicted with God's kingdom. I want to make some statements about five of them as we look through this passage. And with each of those, I want to have it so that we can understand more deeply uh, the message for us in the 21st century from the Lord's Word. Uh, it's interesting, the Lord gave this message at one time. If you read through the entirety of the message, it would take less than 10 minutes. <laughs> and here we are about week number five in it. And the reason being is because there's such depth here. And it's not that um, it wasn't the case in the first century, it was then too. If you remember, Jesus said, I'm going to go to my Father, and I will ask Him, and He will send the Holy Spirit, and He will remind you all the things that I've told you. 
In other words, there were many things that Jesus taught the disciples that they did not grab. And if it weren't for the Holy Spirit's ministry of teaching to them, they would still not have it. But because he taught them the words of Christ that were communicated by Jesus himself, we have the New Testament, and we're very grateful for that. So this message is broken down in parts so that we can understand it more deeply. So let's go through and build some platform for the message to stand on. The first is this, that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. If you're thinking, okay, what does that mean about Jesus being not the Prince of Peace? If he's come to bring a sword, that doesn't sound very peaceful. Well, the reality is Jesus is the Prince of Peace who came to victoriously wage war against Satan, establishing his kingdom, and providing for our citizenship in that kingdom. So this is what Jesus is doing. In fact, that's the narrative of the Bible. It's Jesus moving to accomplish that. The Bible tells us why he had to do that, what was broken. It, it foretells of his coming to be the Redeemer, the Reconciler, and it talks about his reconciliation. It talks about our purpose in that reconciliation. It talks in the end how he is going to uh, rectify everything. So let me just walk you through what we call the meta-narrative. That means the, the larger scope of the story of the Bible and how it's woven together. Now, these are just some of the points, but these are sort of the big points of the meta-narrative of the Bible, the big story of the Bible. And that is this. It begins with Genesis. All creation experienced peace and harmony with God, self, others, and creation. When you think about Genesis 1, you would see the rhythm and the harmony that God had made in creation and how that rhythm and harmony was expressed in all four of those components. All right, but the narrative also includes the peace and harmony being disrupted or broken when mankind acted sinful against God by believing Satan's lies and deceptions. So Satan begins by this argument, did God really say? And then he challenges their understanding of God's word and God's word as it was spoken. And he calls them to be suspicious about the word of God and to act in that deception sinfully against him. And of course, from there, everything sort of falls apart. The rhythm and the, and the harmony that God had established is now corrupted by mankind's willful choice to sin against God and be at a prideful position rather than be in, in harmony under the submission of God. And so we come to letter C, mankind became children of disobedience, ruled by Satan and living at odds with God and his holiness. In fact, this is the case for every generation. It's not just Adam and Eve or Cain and Abel and their other children but it's also every generation sins. Uh, you don't have to teach your children how to be a sinner. They come prepackaged in their flesh for that. And so they'll bite and they'll pull hair and they'll scream selfishly, mine, and all those other sinful ways that children act out because they have a tendency to be disobedient. In fact, if left alone, they will stay in that state. And the enemy will actually be their Lord of their life, the ruler of their life. So we come to letter D. Jesus, God in the flesh, God incarnate, with truth and righteousness came to offer salvation and freedom from sin and judgment. So rightfully so, our sin bring God, brings God's judgment, for he is a just God. And every infraction requires a payment. That's what justice is all about. But Jesus has come as God in flesh with truth and righteousness to take on our sin, the one who knew no sin became sin, so that God might act justly against that sin 
and thereby take the justice that was deserved against us, the act against, uh, of justice against us. So letter E is through the cross and resurrection, Jesus provides our rescue, making peace with God on our behalf. And that passage that Timothy, uh, Paul wrote Timothy, the first letter there, is actually talking about Jesus is the mediator. He's suspended on the cross between God and his holiness and mankind and his sinfulness. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He becomes the perfect mediator to bring resolution to our enmity with God. So we're in conflict with God because of our sin and our unholiness, for God is utterly holy and utterly right. Jesus comes to be the mediator between us. And he takes our sin upon himself. God pours out his justice. And in that, we have faith in Christ that he does away with that. He cancels the sin debt which was held against us. And he gives us his righteousness so that he might declare us to be holy before God. All right, I'm talking about the big narrative of the Bible. You, you're hanging with me, aren't you? Yeah. Right, you already knew all this, didn't you? <laughs> it's a good reminder then. Then letter F, through faith, we are citizens of the spiritual kingdom of God. And I'm sorry, my E is covered over by my little image there. Even as we live in this world. So we're living in the world, but we are citizens of the kingdom of God because Jesus came in to introduce this kingdom. He came into earth to do that. In fact, that was the grand message of the New Testament. It begins with the kingdom of God is near. Jesus comes on the scene and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are used interchangeably. So Jesus has brought in this spiritual kingdom, and he's inviting us to it. And you know how do you get into it? Through him. He's the gate. He's the door by which is the only way for us to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And he's inviting us to come to him in that. All right, so by faith we do that, who have trusted in God to send his son Jesus to be the redeemer of our life, and we end up in letter G. The church is God's voice of the gospel, making known Christ and his redemption known, beckoning people to enter the kingdom of God through Christ. So it's not just that we've entered the kingdom, but we've become the life and the voice that communicates this gospel narrative to everybody. To those in our family, in our workplaces, in our school, and around the world, we begin to tell people what Christ has come to do and what we have experienced in him. That's letter G. That's where we all are. That's where Jesus is with the disciples in Matthew 10 as he's calling them to be the gospel multipliers. So they are saved by the word, which we sang about a minute ago. They are saved by the word of Christ and by their faith. And Jesus is now calling them to be multipliers of that gospel truth into all the regions. So he's sending them out two by two as gospel multipliers, and he's giving them this instruction. All right, the grand narrative of the Bible has been moving to that. That's what the New Testament is about. When you get into Acts and all the epistles, they're in letter G. Right? That's the narrative there. The end of the story is letter H, and it's the last book of the Bible. It's Revelation. It's the end story the meta-narrative is closing there, and it is God's triumph and his rule over creation and him resetting, recreating heaven and earth. And what we mean by that is literally everything that is temporary today is going to be done away with. It's all sin-scarred. In fact, all the rest of creation is groaning, the Bible says, 
for our redemptive bodies, that sin might be done away with. In other words, what God has done spiritually through Christ on the cross, He is going to do physically when He gives us a glorified body without sin. And all creation is longing for that day because sin will never affect the world again. There will never be a cataclysmic storm. There will never be a tornado. There will never be an eruption of a volcano. There will never be an earthquake. There will never be any of that. No more disease, no more sickness, no more venomous snakes. Can I hear an amen on that? Amen. Yeah, God is going to reset everything. And all creation is longing for that closure from the sin that we brought into the world. All right, now catch this. You, you sound like you're with me today. We are in letter G longing for letter H. But we do so actively. God doesn't put us in a hold pattern stationary. We wait actively. We wait with anticipation that this physical kingdom is coming. And only those who are in the spiritual kingdom of God through Christ are going to enter into the physical kingdom. So we are anticipating letter H, but we are actively, aggressively moving in letter G. We are doing what Christ has called us to do, to be the church. So we actively pursue the advancement of the spiritual kingdom of God by communicating and living out the gospel message and inviting people into Christ. We actively fan the flame of revival that it might burn gloriously in this church, in this community, in this state, in this country, and around the world. We actively demonstrate Jesus Christ as we are his body. We want to communicate that grace message and we want to live out the grace message. We are actively doing that. All right, all of that becomes the foundation of us understanding the words of Jesus because the meta narrative of the Bible has been moving to this point. So here's the first point that I want to make about the Lord's message that we read earlier. As Christians, we are called to the redemptive mission of Jesus Christ, which puts us in spiritual battle behind enemy lines. All right, this battle is unlike any other. Normally, the battle is to destroy the enemy. In fact, if you call a general and you ask him, what's the purpose of war? We are to kill people and destroy things. That's what war does. All right, this is a battle unlike any other that we're called to. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And so what he is calling us to is not a battle to destroy the enemy. The enemy's destruction is not our job. That's the commander of the Lord's army. That's Jesus' job. That's not our job. Our job is a rescue mission. So we are dropped behind enemy lines to rescue those who have been imprisoned by the enemy, who are imprisoned with lies and deception and darkness and despair and depression, to rescue them by pointing them to the mediator who can make all things right, who is redeeming all things and reconciling all things. That's our mission. Our mission is not to go fight the enemy. Our mission is to rescue those who are broken, to rescue those who are lost those who have been affected, those who are prisoners of this war that has been going on throughout the centuries. Our battle is a rescue mission. So we go there on the lookout for broken people who are living in darkness in the lies and the deception of the enemy, who are sinful people living at odds with God and His holiness. 
We find people there and then we point them to Jesus. And as saints of God who were once sinners against God, we understand the gospel message like nobody else. We go to them in their brokenness and say, so as I, let me introduce you to the one who healed me. We go to the sinful and we don't point out their sin. We say, so as I, let me point you to the one who can transform you into sainthood. We point people who are spiritually dead, not pointing to the death that they live, but the life that Christ wants to give to them. So we call them to that place of victory, to that place of peace. Yes, the battle is a spiritual battle, but it's also among physical territories. We go into kingdoms where the enemy rules and reigns, and we make a spiritual advancement in that physical space. We bring into that space truth where there was once lies, light where there was once darkness, and holiness where there was once just commonality. We go into that place with a spiritual battle in hand. So for us to live in this world unto Christ, we will experience conflict in that. And Jesus is giving us a heads up on that. We initiate a spiritual battle but the way often people who we engage spiritually will retaliate, and they will, is not with spiritual weaponry, but with physical, emotional, relational weapons. And Jesus is saying to us, heads up, as they did to me, they will do to you. He's telling us to count the cost, to ensure that we're understanding the depth of this call. This is not just some flippant, why don't you come to church and let the Lord change your life? Why don't, you, why don't you not go to hell and go to heaven? That's not what this is. This is a call to a kingdom that move, moves the kingdom into a physical space that is occupied by a real enemy. Jesus is helping his gospel multipliers to see the truth in that. In our life with Christ in this world, we have peace, yes, in our heart, but I'm telling you, it brings a temporary consequence of conflict with people around us. If you're going to genuinely follow the Prince of Peace, you are going to experience conflict in this temporary world. And Jesus is helping us to discover that so that we're not flabbergasted by the notion that people who we try to engage lovingly come to engage us in a hateful, spiteful way. He's helping us to discover that. Why, you might ask, would genuine Christianity provoke such a negative response at times from people? Why would it be so conflicting and so potentially diverse and bring division to people? I think Douglas O'Donnell gives an answer to that like very few people have. And so I've written a section of his commentary for you on the screen. The cross is a sword because its message is not the message insurrectionists want to hear. Insurrectionists simply, in this case, is meaning the rebellious ones, those who are rebellious against God and his word and his holiness. So the cross is a sword because its message is not the message rebels want to hear. Who wants to hear that he is sinful at the core of his being? Who wants to hear that in Jesus' death, God has opened the gates of freedom and peace for all insurrectionists if and only if they stop their insurrection? And who wants to hear that God will not permit such insurrection to go unchallenged forever, that judgment awaits those who will not accept his peace treaty from the Prince of Peace? 
So our message comes with opposition. It's a message of hope and it's a message of grace. But you have to first come to a conclusion that you're in need of hope and you are in need of grace. And that's a message that the rebellious individual wants no part of. And they'll come against you for that. You say, what are you expecting, Randy? Them to physically attack? Probably they're going to pull back. Probably they're going to pull you, pull away from you and put you in isolation. They're probably going to disregard you. Probably are not going to invite you in their sphere. In Christ, we have disunity with this world and culture even among our closest earthly relationships. A worldview is the framing by which you understand and live in this world. There are many, many worldviews out in the culture, but you and I have but one. It's what we call a biblical worldview. In other words, we have chosen to engage this Bible in a way that we read it, we believe it, we meditate on it, and we understand everything by it. We don't choose to live out of experience. We don't choose to live out of the words of somebody else. We choose to live this. In fact, everything that I see happening in this world, I see through this Bible. When you come to me and ask me, the first response I ought to give should not be, Oh, I believe you ought to do this, and I believe you ought to do that. Or, in my opinion, it's this, or in my opinion, it's that. Listen, that means nothing. What you should hear me say is, according to the Bible, this is the way you should understand that. According to the Bible, this is what God views as that. The Bible becomes the central place for which I live and think and talk and act. Now, I'm not perfect at that, but that's the call, and that's your call as well. You and I are to engage this Bible in such a way that it becomes life to us, that it becomes the way we think and the things that we say and how we respond and how we share with other people. All right, with that comes a measure of conviction because the world is living as the world wants to live. The, the world is a swaying moving culture, right? And culture is really just a coagulation of beliefs locally. It's the pulling together of community with some core beliefs, and we then have a developed culture. All right, for us, culture must be this. Because if you're leaving it up to the world, man, do things ever sway. It just depends on the current political scene. Just depends on the current movies that are out there, how some song hits us, how some couple looks on TV, or how we read about them in a, a narrative, magazine, book, whatever. The culture is shifty. But you and I have this. All right, so when we live this out, it comes with a, a little bit of a sting. It comes resetting lies. It comes with a measure of, of conviction. Now, who knows that more in you than the people who are in the closest relationships with you? You know who knows the life that I live more than anybody else? My wife, my sons, my parents, 
And if they're in opposition to God and His Word, if they're in opposition to righteous living or holy choices, then my life in Christ is going to bring a sting to it, isn't it? It's going to bring some friction in that relationship. And Jesus is saying, bear forth. Even when the relationships turn against you, even the closest of relationships that you are hungry for. I've come to set man against father and daughter against mother and daughter-in-law against daughter-in-law. Now, Jesus is not saying that you ought not have love relationships with those people. In fact, he would say the very opposite of that. What he's saying is, in comparison to all other relationships, make sure mine's supreme. Make sure mine is the, the highest in your life. Make sure not to discount me because of some other temporary relationship that you have on earth. That tension is going to bring a backlash from many who are closest to us. And Jesus is warning us about that. He's preparing us for it. He's not softening the reality. He's not even offering us to a solution. He's merely revealing the inevitable conflict to remind us that our relationship with Him is superior to all other relationships. And that brings me to that next point. The conflict that Jesus calls us to bear is the conflict that He has already borne. There's a couple of passages that stand out. One is as the crowds were pressing in on Jesus, as Mark 3 describes. He went home. Now, we already know that Jesus has stated that he doesn't have a physical home, so this is not a dwelling place. This is like going back to Gadsden. For him, it's Capernaum. It's that coastal place where Jesus' hub of ministry is mainly located in that region. And he goes there, and the crowds gather again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Well, the picture is pretty clear. They're saying, what is this? That all these people are following him, and he can't eat, and he can't get in uh, any time for himself. Well, this is crazy. He's out of his mind. Let's go and get him. If you remember the narrative, uh, Jesus is in a home, and he's teaching, and uh, some of the disciples come to him and say, hey, your family's outside. And Jesus asked, who is my family? Who is my mother? Who are the brothers? And he resets it by saying, it's he who does the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, the relationship that Jesus has with his Father in heaven is superior to any relationship he has on earth. And so it makes sense to us that Jesus would call us to the same life. That if he was willing, we should be willing. His brothers rejected him, as John 5 said. They didn't believe in him. And then he said in verse 7, Hey, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Of course, later, that testimony also becomes ours, and the world hates us. So everything that Jesus is calling us to, Jesus has already experienced, and he has been proven to be faithful to the mission that he was called to. So he's demanding of us what he has already demanded of himself. Now look at the next point. Jesus demands our utmost devotion to him. Anything less is not sufficient. And here's his words. 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, he is not saying you ought not love your mom and dad. You ought not love your children or your mom-in-law and daughter-in-law. You ought to not love each other. He's not saying that. This is the most basic of love relationships that we have. And really, it's the easiest. The familiar relationships that we have are easy love relationships. In fact, you don't have to grow in love with your kids. Now, you might grow out of love in them every now and then, but you don't have to work at it to love your kids. In fact, when Kay told me she was pregnant, I was instantly in love. And when all three sons were born, as nasty as they looked when they were born, I immediately fell in love. I'm telling you, it's love at first sight. I didn't have to grow or quote-unquote fall in love. Man, that's the easiest love that there is. You hold that little baby and it's squirming in your arms and you just immediately know, I love him. He hasn't even uttered a word to me, can't even focus on me, but by golly, I love him. Jesus isn't saying not to love. He put that love in us. What he's saying is, don't let that love for your sons be greater than your love for me. Don't let that love for your mom or dad be greater than your love for me. Love me above all. Now, some might say, well, that sounds a little brash. That sounds a little out there. Well, I know today in our experience, if we heard anybody say that, we'd say, wow, what a narcissist. Or what a cult leader that they're supposed to to deny father and mother and children, we would never think that that would be okay. And I would say we would be right to question that unless you're the son of God. Because if you're the son of God and Christ Jesus and you willfully left the relationship position with you and your father and you willfully came to earth, you left glory to come to darkness, you left perfection and righteousness and holiness to come to sin and imperfection, you left that place where all attention is on you to come to the place where all rejection would be on you, and you lived it out purposefully so that you might rescue us who are broken, and you showed and demonstrated greater love than anybody has ever demonstrated in that you gave your only life, your only begotten life unto them, when you live out that level, then it would be really okay to say, and you ought to love me the same way. That's what he's doing. He's demonstrating, this is my love for you. And we demonstrate back, and Lord, this is our love for you. Philip says, human love and relationship must be placed on the altar. I just wonder, is there any relationship that ought to be on the altar today from you? Jesus is speaking quite a pattern here. In fact, if you remember the narrative of his message, he is challenging us in multiple ways. And the pursuit is to choose him over everything else. In fact, if you go to the beginning of this message in 
chapter 10, verse 8, you'll find him saying, choose me over your possessions. He says, as a gospel multiplier, don't take a bunch of stuff with you and, and don't give the message expecting to be paid for it. So choose me over your possessions. Then he says, choose me over your safety and security. You just got to know that they're coming after you. That's what he told the gospel multipliers. And to those who he called to be commissioned with him, he said, choose me over self-preservation. Choose me over the emotions that are going to come against you that are negative when they reject you. And you have to literally shake off the dust and move on to the other one to try to get the message out there. Choose me over that. And now he's saying, choose me over family. Choose me over the, the closest relationships that you have. Only God in Christ Jesus could do that. And then next, Jesus' sacrificial call to us is great. His life with us is even greater. So I'm not belittling the call. It is significant. But I don't want you to miss the opportunity to have the great, significant relationship with Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Whoever finds his life will lose it, Jesus said, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'm interested in the way Peterson put it in the message paraphrase. I'm often discounting some of those things, but this one, I think he nailed it. If, you fir if your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. Jesus is saying, look to me as the preeminent. Look to me first. Lay down everything in order to find me. And when you find me, you'll find the you that I've come to create, that I've come to sacrifice for, that I've come to give you. So what are you looking for in the world? I doubt that there's any of us that woke up today thinking, you know, I'm looking for sin today. I'm looking for insurrection today. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a little rebelliousness. I doubt that's true. For the majority of us, we probably err in not looking, period. Just letting life be lived. If you live in the current of life, my friends, you are going to be taken by the culture of life. And Jesus is basically asking us, what is it that you're living for, looking for? Are you looking for a greater life experience in the temporary? Are you looking for more social acceptance? Do you get your thrills from the Facebook likes or the Instagram hearts? What are you looking for? Are you looking for greater possessions? Is that why you're working so hard? So that you might have more, do more, go more, be more? What is it that you're doing? Are you creating a, a place of safety and security for your life and you're going to live within those protective means? What are you looking for? Jesus says, if you're not looking for me, you're looking for the wrong things. If you're not living for me, you're living for the wrong things. You'll find your greatest needs and assurances and acceptance and significance in me. Everything else is just a counterfeit. So be willing to surrender all things to have me. Pastor and author John Piper writes introspectively. He's so authentic in the measure of his heart. He, he's boldly transparent in his book called Don't Waste Your Life. And here's one paragraph from it. He says, I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. 
to start to fit in, to start to love what others love, and start to call earth home. Before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing, missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do, not to what God can do. It's a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again toward wartime mindset. You know what John uh, Matthew 10 is doing? It's Jesus helping us to have a wartime mindset. It's helping us to come back to the reality that there is a spiritual battle going on and we are the mobilized force. And we have been parachuted into the enemy's area to look for those who are prisoners of the enemy. And when we find them in their brokenness, when we find them in their deception, when we find them in their despair, we point them to the healer. We point them to the redeemer. We point them to the mediator between God and man. We don't lag in that. We don't hold back in that. We don't pursue things of this world. We pursue things of God. Unless, of course, we're double-minded and unstable in all of our ways. Unless, of course, we lose the mentality of being in war. Unless, of course, we're pacifists and say, uh, that's somebody else's war, not mine. Unless we say, well, at least I'm rescued. At least I'm free. Well, Jesus is calling us to the battle. And he's helping us to understand the significant cost of the battle. Let me try to frame it up in the way some of you might be living this out. Maybe your biblical worldview puts you in conflict with the sinful choices and practices or lifestyles of people in your family. In that place, you're on a precarious, thin line, aren't you? You know the truth of God's word, and at the same time, you're trying to act lovingly towards the people in your family. You don't want them to question your love, but you certainly want them to question their life without Christ, life without clarity from his word. And if you're not careful, the struggle might be, do I just give in to their life and sin? Do I just accept that that's the way the world is? And my loved one lives in this world? Maybe your righteous living to the honor of Jesus dampens the mood for the free-spirited family or friends that you once had close relationships with. Now you find fewer texts coming in and fewer calls ringing. You find fewer invites from them. You begin having an inward conversation that asks questions like, is living with and for Jesus worth giving up so much? Maybe your life was once seemingly carefree. You did what you wanted to do, when you wanted to do it, with whom you wanted to do it. You thought that such a life was one of freedom, but in reality you came to conclusion that you were chasing after satisfaction that was always a moving target. Never really satisfied. 
And you wanted to be deeply satisfied in something significant, and Christ Jesus miraculously made himself known to you. And you recognized in him you could have acceptance and security and significance. You surrendered yourself to his lordship, and you've chosen from that point forward to live unto his honor and unto his glory. And you picked up the biblical worldview. You now see things in that way. But maybe your family, friends, and co-workers show less signs of interest in you and your message of Jesus. Maybe you sense they're pulling away, and maybe in that point of isolation, it's prompting doubt and concern. You begin to ponder among your own thoughts, have I gone too far? Am I too radical now in Christ? I would say in all of those and every other situation that we deal with like that, Stay the course, my friend. Jesus stayed the course and it ended up with our salvation. Stay the course. You may think that you're casting seeds of the gospel on fallow ground, but I'm telling you, you never know when the Spirit of God is going to begin working in a heart or a mind and softening and conditioning, and that soul is going to be ready for that gospel to take root. And it will shoot forth life. Stay the course. And if at the end of your day, when you breathe your last breath and you have looked back and you said, God, I don't see the fruit of my labor, but I have stayed the course, you'll hear the first words, well done, faithful servant, stay the course. When the world wants to shut you up, stand up and speak loudly, boldly proclaim with your life and with your mouth that Jesus is the answer. And the world is shifting and swaying. You be the constitution in their life to what truth really is. For God's word does not change. Stay the course. Know that we're going to experience what Jesus experienced. Great trouble as we mobilize and multiply his gospel kingdom. Stay the course. And in the end, what we have with Christ will prove more glorious than anything ever lost, anything never realized. What we have with Christ in its acceptance, his significance, and his security eternally will far exceed anything that we have, may have lost in those three in this world. Stay the course. Let's pray and ask God to help us there. Father, as you know, we have a lot of difficulty in this, a lot of difficulty staying on the path, have a lot of difficulty because it's a narrow path and it is a difficult path to travel. So please, God, empower us by your spirit and with this call of Jesus to stay, empower us to do so. Find us faithful, forever faithful, no matter what conflict might come against us. God, in this room, I recognize that there are many who have family, fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, in-laws, who they long desperately to know you, to be in relationship with you, to be surrendered to you, to have eternal life in you, an abundant life. And yet, Lord, they have been rebellious to that. Oh, God, please, please, in life and word, help them to stay the course. And where they feel isolated at work or school or in the neighborhood or among what used to be friends, Lord, Please let them trump in their relationship with you over every other relationship and be fully satisfied. 
Lord, mobilize us, I pray, to be multipliers of your kingdom work. Mobilize us for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.